morning, Crosspoint. Today's scripture comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 to 19. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what we for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of, the, of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been de defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upholding, beloved. This is God's words. So, thank you, thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Thanks, Eduardo. Um, we are plowing our way through <clears throat> Second Corinthians still. Uh, we've been in this book since February of this year. And we are nearing the end, even though we're not quite there yet. Uh, we're, we're finishing out the second to the last chapter here. And, um, and man, God has been doing a good work in me through this um, study. Uh, I pray that he has been doing a good work in you as well. Um, as we've just been trying to really tease out what has been the context, what has been the major theme of this book, of this letter. It's what it truly is, a letter from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. Um, and so, uh, over the course of this letter, Paul to the Corinthians, um, we've been unpacking really what, what a godly boast looks like. It's one of the things we've been looking at pretty consistently and regularly as we've done this. And um, this is a boast that is, it's a strong, unflinching confidence in the grace of God through Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Okay, so this, this boast is rooted in and it ends in the gospel. It ends in God himself as the son of man coming to earth to become man, put on flesh, live the life we couldn't live, die the death we should have died, rising again and empowering each and every one of us to live as he has called us to live. That's our boast. So this is the godly boast, the unflinching confidence, this grace that God has given each and every one of us. This is the boast that Paul boasts in over and over and over again. We work to try to show that and, and display or tease out how Paul is displaying that. A few weeks ago in chapter 10, when I was preaching, um, I laid out how our boast in anything other than this, um, it really has to, we can have boasts other than this, but they have to submit themselves to this greater boast. 
to the ultimate boast of our lives. And um, this is, our again, a boast in God and what he has done and who he is. Last week, um, Pastor Ryan unpacked Paul's willingness to submit his boast in, in real ways, like in, in real terms. Like, what did this look like? We saw that Paul was given a, 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 this metaphor of a thorn in his flesh. He couldn't get rid of it. It was there, and he pleaded with God for it to be rid of his life, uh, rid from his life. And, and God said this to him. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul says this then. He says that I will boast of my weakness. I am content with my weakness. For when I am weak, what? Then I am strong. We read about God's affirming words. He affirms Paul and he says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Trust me. Don't boast in your power. Don't boast in your strength. Don't boast in the things that you have accomplished or where you came from or your upbringing, your accolades or anything else. Boast in me. Boast in the fact that I will take care of you. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. I leave you at that. In the midst of Paul explaining this to the Corinthians, almost mid-sentence, Paul then begins with these words today. He says, I have been a fool. Paul's admitting that he's, in, he's engaged in some type of foolishness here. What is that? He admits that this is foolishness to which he's given to is is defending his apostleship to the Corinthians. Now, not that this was necessary, but it seemed as though it shouldn't have been necessary. Now, the situation proved that it was because he had to do it. And this is what he means when he says, you force me to it. You force me to become a fool. You force me to compare myself and defend myself against these false apostles, these imposers. And this in itself is foolishness, for why should I even have to? I've become a fool. You force me to it, he says. For I ought to have been commended by you. I ought to have been commended. So let's, let's just pause real quick, because I want us to really feel and understand Paul's situation here. He has been pouring himself out for these people. And he's saying he, he hasn't done it more or less really than any other churches. He hasn't, he hasn't put other churches above the church in Corinth, um, even though they've been trying to, to say that in different ways. And they've, they've said that through just simply the fact that he hasn't asked for any money from them to be able to support his ministry. He's asked money for to support the ministry in Jerusalem, but not for himself. And what he's saying is, he's like, I'm trying to defend my position. I'm trying to defend who I am, the, the call that God has placed upon my life, but truly, I have nothing to defend. I have nothing to defend. Even if I am able to appropriately defend the validity of who I am and the call upon my life, it would only in the end be me pointing back to God himself. And this is the reason that Paul says... In verse 11, the second part of it, that I am nothing. He says, For I, I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. I am nothing. 
I can imagine Paul's distress in this because, um, again, how he's poured himself out and he's, he's tried to love these people well, but he's only been accused of wrong towards them, of wronging them, of malicious um, intent towards them. And, and I, can, I can understand this because uh, my wife Ryan and I, we've attempted to open our home um, as much as we can to those that might need it at any time. Um, and, and, and we try to work really hard to say, hey, like this is, this is a place that God has given us. We, we'll leverage it. We'll leverage it. And if there's a need, we'll try to give it. And a couple times um, where, you know, you would think that that would be met with gratitude, it's actually ended in us being cut off in relationship from that individual um, and even being accused of, um, you know, um, underhandedness and um, that we had... We were suspect in our intentions. And I remember us just being like, what in the world? Like, how, how is this possible? Like, we're, we're opening our home. We're trying to be generous. And you would think that there would just be a gratitude towards that. But man, our intentions were met with suspect. And we were being questioned for ulterior motives. And the quick thing to do is mean we want to justify ourselves. We want to vindicate ourselves. We want to set the record straight, right? In a lot of ways, this is purposeful. This is what Paul is trying to do. But he's saying, even in doing this, it's foolishness because why should I even have to? Look at my life, church. Look at the past. Look at where we are. How have I treated you any different? How have I been underhanded? What you're basing your conclusions on are fallacies. They're lies put in your head by these super apostles, these false apostles. I said a few weeks ago that all of us, um, like Paul, Paul had a place of authority in the church, but all of us have a God-given a, uh, influence, an area of influence in our lives. Like God has placed us in a particular place at a particular time for a particular reason, and we ought to take that and leverage that for his glory and in his name to be famed, for the kingdom to advance. Now, I want to kind of piggyback on that and today and, and look at this godly influence and look at the paradox of it, because there is, there is this paradox that we're confronted here in this passage, and it is this, that we have influence, though we're nothing. We have an area of influence in other people's lives, though we have no reason to have it. We have nothing. We, like Paul, are nothing. He says, I'm not inferior to these super apostles, though I am nothing. And why is he saying that? Really, it goes back to where he's, he, uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, he talks about how he was the last of the apostles, that he didn't actually walk with Jesus, that he was met on the road by Jesus, but he didn't walk with Jesus like the other apostles did. And he was the last of the apostles. He was also saying that he's the, the least of all these apostles and nothing because of how he treated the church prior to. And so Paul had this understanding of, man, I, I got nothing to bring to the table here. God chose me of his own grace, of his own accord, his own mercy, and I got nothing. And today, we ought to see in a similar light 
our own selves. So the first thing we see is we must embrace nothingness. Everyone wants to be somebody in somebody else's eyes, right? Uh, we all want to be somebody. We want other people to esteem us, to look up to us, to hold us in high regard. We want to be somebody in somebody's eyes. I mean, this is, this is not just true for like friendships and relationships. I mean, I want to be somebody in my kids' lives. I want my wife to look at me like, like I'm somebody, right? I mean, this, is, this gets down real deep, not just surface level stuff, man. I want to be somebody in somebody's life. But Paul embraced a nothingness. And I'm not just trying to, you know, uh, really wrench this passage and make it something it's not. I believe this is displayed over the course of his ministry that we read through his letters. He displays this, I'm nothing. And how he did this is he clings to the cross of Jesus. He clings to his position in Christ. You know, there's many well-intended pastors and many non-well-intended um, uh, uh, pastors. Both of them alike, they, they can spill out messages that tell you, you're significant, you're valued, you're favored, you're perfect just the way you are. You're blessed. Embrace it. Don't let anybody tell you any different. The message might be this, God accepts you as you are. But the concept that God is love, which is true, God is love, has been twisted. It's been twisted by culture to be something more palatable that, makes, that, that tickles our, our flesh, that makes us more comfortable with who we are. It doesn't push us to being uncomfortable with who we are, but it pushes us to be more comfortable with who we, who we are. And it does this. It twists it by making God's love exclusive. That God is exclusively love. But see, the thing is, church, God is also holy. God is also just. He is sovereign. His omniscience cannot be separated from his fairness, and his love cannot be separated from his holiness. He is all of these things. Yes, he is love. But if God accepted you just as you are, he would not truly love you. That would not be true love. Because the Bible lays out for us a really different message of who we are than sometimes the way we, we think we are. The Bible tells us, just looking at Ephesians 2, in our sin that we were dead. Before Jesus, we were dead in our sin. That we were objects of wrath of God because of our sin. That we were bankrupt spiritually. We literally had nothing. We had nothing to hold on to, no boast to have. We had nothing. And we were without hope. So Paul's position of though I am nothing is not just self-deprecation, right? In order to just kind of uh, somehow manipulate the situation and make the Corinthians feel bad for himself. No. This was an authentic 
place. He could truly embrace being nothing. Why? Because the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ told him that he had everything. He could say, I'm nothing. I have nothing to bring to you, but in Christ, I have everything. Yes, church, you are loved. Yes, church, you are significant. Yes, you are favored. But why? Why is it? We must understand that it is because Jesus took our insignificant lives, our unworthy to be loved selves, our rejected selves. He put it upon himself and he gave us his favor, his worth, and his significance, his value, and his love that was bestowed upon himself and now upon us by the Father in heaven. Through this, we now call upon this God as Father. This is our position. This is our value. This is our place. And it had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with Jesus. This is why we continually remind ourselves our boast is Jesus. Our boast is Jesus. It's his grace. It's his mercy. It's what he has done for us. Was it not Paul who said, I I count everything a loss. I count it as garbage, as rubbish, as worthless because of their surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Or was it not him that said that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost? Was it not him that also said that all of us like sheep have gone astray? All of us have turned to our own way. All of us have sinned without exception Even our own righteousness is filthy rags unto God. This is the self that Paul denies. Was it not Jesus himself who said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny what? Himself. Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You have to have both. You have to have a denial of who you are and a turning to Jesus and following him. One without the other. Either one of those missing only ends in destruction. We have to deny ourselves and not just deny ourselves and then leave it at that as if we have no hope and no worth and no value, but we turn and follow Jesus who gives us those things who gives us a place to stand on, who gives us a place of authority or a place of influence in anyone else's life. So the question, just a quick heart check here. We'll do this throughout the the sermon today, but what are you doing, Christian, to, on a daily basis, deny yourself and follow Jesus? If Jesus' words are to us, that anyone who would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, then what are we doing towards that end? What does it look like in your life personally? Is your life being built around who you are and what you've accomplished and the things that you can boast in to, um, to who you are today? Or is it simply on the cross? Augustus, top lady, who um, he wrote, the song, one of the, if not the most well-known hymn, um, probably aside from Amazing Grace, 
rock of ages. He writes this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We must look at Paul in his decisive actions that he took as a leader in the church, as an authority in the church, as an influence to other people, how he took a stand for those people's calling in Christ to seek their fulfillment of God's plan in their lives, to be about that while simultaneously denying himself of anything other than nothing and ask ourselves, how can we and ought we to do the same with our lives? How can we move forward as being an influence, as being someone who challenges other people, who is about their well-being, is about their faith increasing in Jesus, while simultaneously saying, I got nothing to bring? That's the paradox. Let me give us three ways um, that I think in this text... uh, show us how to deny ourselves and to follow Christ in this manner. The first one is we uphold authenticity. Read with me in verse 12. Verse 12, if I find it, there it is. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me for this wrong. Jump down to verse 16 with me. Verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? In verse 12, Paul says, the signs of a true apostle. What are the signs of a true apostle, the authentic apostle? It's interesting because he he uses this word signs twice. It's the same word. He says the signs of a true apostle. And then he also says, along with signs and wonders and mighty works. So most commentators will agree that uh, these are two different things that Paul is juxtaposing here. The signs and wonders and mighty works um, were one thing. But then there were the authentic, the true signs of an apostle. What were those? Stealing from Scott Haifman I believe that at least one of those things is the establishment of new churches, that Paul planted new churches. Why? Because, you know, false prophets, um, they can do signs and wonders and mighty works in another name. Many people have. They can do amazing things, but they can never fake the Spirit's work and salvation in someone's life. Remember, Paul is the one who brought the gospel to the Corinthians. He's the reason there's a church even there. And so it is in the church's affirmation of their faith, their, the confirmation of their faith in Jesus Christ, that Paul is saying, look, you believe because you first believed in Jesus. And you can't say that this was something you've done on your own doing or someone else has done for you other than the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who brings conversion in one's life. We can never fake the Spirit's work in our life. No matter what good we do, 
no matter what amazing and grand uh, gestures we can produce in our lives, no matter how much um, we spend ourselves for the church or the, the mission of God, no matter if we give everything and we just, we just give everything to the poor, no matter how much we read our Bible, no matter, you, you name it, no matter if we grow this church to hundreds of thousands of people, that we can do all these things, but none of them will produce any lasting fruit apart from the Spirit's work in it, apart from His activity in them. You know, I've, I, I feel as though I've been in ministry almost all my life. From a young age, I, you know, I grew up in the church. From a young age, I was, I was um, leading worship in church. Um, and given opportunity after opportunity. And I quickly learned how I could use ministry to feed this approval idol in me, to feed this incessant need for people to commend me and to prove myself spiritually to other people. It's a really easy trap to fall into. That I could use a position... I could use a gift. I could use, you name it, in order to prove to other people that I'm something special. Or just even, you know, just kind of wrap it up in this, in this beautiful way of like, man, he's a spiritual person. I wanted to be spiritual. I wanted to be godly. But I would use ministry in order to prove that to other people instead of seeking godliness itself. This is still a temptation. There are many traps that all of us have in our lives to be able to prove ourselves to other people. But denying ourselves means that we deny the inner man that, that needs recognition. We deny the inner man that says, I need to be recognized. I need to be affirmed. You know, we may be able to fool others, but Believe it, church, we will never be able to fool God. We may be able to become great in others' eyes, but we will never become great in the kingdom of God without a first self-denying ourselves, denial of ourselves, and denial of the things that our hearts are sick over. Our sick hearts long for these incessant idols. Ask yourself this, what are the signs of a true disciple of Jesus? What are the signs of a true disciple? What has Jesus said? What do you need to repent of for failure to demonstrate or in adding to these true signs? And what do you need to come back to? Today, what is Jesus speaking to you? He's saying, my son, my daughter, you're mine. I've bought you. Come away. Come away from these, these dry wells, these dry cisterns that you've been trying to drink out of, and let me give you water that will last forever. Let me satisfy you. Let me show you that my grace is sufficient for you.
May we come back to being true followers of Jesus and not people that try to prove to other people that we are first before we actually are. The second way, first is uphold authenticity. The second way that we deny ourselves and follow Jesus from this text, it shows us that we would seek relationships over resources. Read in verse 14, read with me. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. Hear that again. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly, be, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. You cannot truly love people if you need something from them. Now, all of us need something from someone else, right? We're not just, you know, this autonomous being, and we completely, you know, don't need relationships or anything from other people. Of course we need this. This is why we gather as a church. We need each other. But when we come to a relationship, when we come to someone else, and it's predicated on requiring something from them, it is then that we are at least lessening our ability to love them because our decisions toward them will be predicated on whether or not we receive what we need from them. So whether it's approval from them or uh, commendation from them, whatever it may be, if we need that from them, or like Paul here, who says that, I do not want what you had, I want you. If we can't say that, then we can't truly love the person. Think about how Jesus loved us, loves us. But what did he do? What did Jesus do for us? Well, he laid down his life for us. This is completely backwards to coming to someone and saying, well, what can you do for me? Jesus is God and didn't need anything from anyone, and yet still he laid down his life for mankind. In John 15, 12 through 13, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How did he love us? He shows us greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So what do we want? Is it, is it approval? Is it attention? Is it praise? Paul did not need the approval of the Corinthians for spiritual significance in his life. No, that came from God. Paul did not require that. He says, I, I, I am Christ's. I am Christ. He is mine. I know where my approval comes from. And so it's foolishness that I even have to begin to defend my apostleship. But you've made me do it, and I will do it. But Paul is saying here that it's not based upon comparison. Don't look at how I compare to these false apostles. And I'm no, no one... At all, not at all inferior to them, but it's not even about them and me. 
we can get in this game of comparison. And John Tyson, he says that comparison is an enemy of compassion. Comparison is an enemy of compassion. I like that because it, it really shows us how when we decide or when we can't extend compassion to someone where our heart might lie. And it might lie in the fact that we're trying to compare ourselves to them. It's evident that Paul is not trying to compare himself to the apostles or to the Corinthians. And he has his comparison in line with God. Because even in the midst of their accusations towards them, he moves towards them with compassion and with love. Think about, as an illustration, think about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. On the night before Jesus was crucified, in John 13, we can, we can read about Jesus doing one of the most amazing displays of humility. And many of you know this, but we need to be reminded of again that Jesus was able to do this, as the text shows us in John 13. Jesus was able to extend compassion to his disciples, to those whom he created, and wash their feet. Why? Because his confidence was in his relationship with his Father. This is what it tells us in John 13. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to, into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. You understand that it, this was predicated on, his decision to do this, predicated on the fact that he is God's. He came from God, he's going back to God, and everything has been given to him. And so therefore, Jesus from this position rises from supper. He lays aside his outer garments. He takes off his clothes to show his, that he's willing to be indignant. And he takes a towel and ties it around his waist and he kneels down in front of every single one of his disciples. He pours water into a basin and he washes their feet. How? Because he knew who he was. He knew who he was. When you're upset at someone, ask yourself this question. This is something I learned recently and I've been trying to apply it to my life. It's such a good question to ask. When I'm upset, something's happening and it's at somebody in particular or maybe it's just a situation in general but maybe someone in particular will go with that ask yourself what do I want that I'm not getting right here right now I'm upset what do I want that I'm not getting and then ask what am I not believing that God has already given me in Jesus most of the time we can find that what we're seeking and what we're angry about is we're not receiving the thing that we truly want the most. And so we're angry about that. And we, be, we can begin to resist and also pull back and refuse compassion to other people. Paul knew who he was in Christ. And he let that lead him towards loving the Corinthians well. Third thing. So first thing is that we... Um, we uh, uphold authenticity. The second thing is that we, uh, we seek relationships over resources. And the third thing now is that we build others up. Verse 19, uh, final verse here. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? 
It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. All for your upbuilding, beloved. This is interesting because, again, there, Paul is making a defense, but he's not making a defense, a self-defense, we should say. Yes, it is a defense for his apostleship, but it is not a self-defense. And why? We can see this in two ways. One, A, is that it is in the sight of God. This is in reference back to where Paul in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And he says again, we are speaking in Christ. We have been speaking in Christ. So we can know that Paul is not trying to just simply um, make a self-defense. He's making a defense for something bigger here. B, he says that it's for their upbuilding. Upbuilding, we can also understand as increased faith. We increase the faith in others. Building up can... Um, it can be misunderstood, and it can sometimes when we think about it, just the concept can sometimes come across as just like pure encouragement. I want to build you up. I want to, I want to encourage you, and those can be synonymous. But encouragement is, is not the, the, the um, upbuilding in its entirety. It is a, a slice of the proverbial pie, if you will, but, but it's not everything. It's certainly encouragement. It's no less than that, but it's so much more than simply encouraging someone else. Um, this week, I asked my father if I could ask him, you know, everything he knew on building houses. So my dad has built uh, six houses himself. And, um, and when I say himself, I mean, he had someone do the foundation, um, but m mostly everything else um, he designed and he built from the foundation up. Sometimes he had people help him. Sometimes the first couple houses he said he did all by himself. Raising the walls, electricity, plumbing, everything. And I said, Dad, what, tell me everything that you know about um, building a house. Uh, and and now I should have known. I mean, that's really a loaded question, right? And, uh, but let me say one thing that he told me that was uh, so helpful. And it is this. That he said, Josiah, everything is a challenge. When you're building a home, everything is a challenge. And when we look at this word upbuilding, it literally means, I mean, just it, its truest form is to build something up, to add to it. And if we were to take this metaphor of building a home, and, we, and, this, and this is an imperfect metaphor, I understand, but, but um, I think it's helpful in the, in the sense of us seeing how when we add things to this home, every time we're building, every time we're adding another thing to the process, it's a challenge. And in life, when Paul, Paul is saying that it was all for your upbuilding, in life, when we are as a church, ought to be about each other's betterment and their, uh, each other's increased faith in Jesus and who we are in Christ, everything is a challenge towards that end. Sometimes it's encouragement, but man, sometimes it's just flat out telling somebody they're in sin. Sometimes it's just downright hard to love people, to look past 
imperfections and sins, to forgive people. Sometimes it's just downright challenging. What we must remember, church, is that, that God is the architect of this house. Okay, he's the one who has the designs. He's the one who's planned it out. And he has commissioned each and every one of, one of us to be builders in this process. To be about the upbuilding in the, the building up, the increasing of faith in each other's lives. That we would all fix our eyes upon Jesus together and look to him and challenge each other toward that end. Here's one of the most paradoxical aspects of our ministry as the church. It's that your influence and my influence, when fueled by the gospel, it doesn't increase others' faith in us. It increases their faith in Jesus. That God has chosen to use the weak and the despised and the foolish things of this world for his glory. Did you know that the, the Holy Spirit has used, is using, and will use you to be a part of the architecture of someone's faith? We are not an autonomous people. We are a people. And the church, in particular, is a blood-bought, multicolored people brought together. He will use you to promote gospel growth in another's life. This is one of, of two main pillars of why we even gather in the first place. Why do we even come together? These pillars are that we would worship God and that we would serve others. That we would love God and we would love others. The greatest commandment that Jesus gave us. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When we come together, we are coming together with mutual eyes fixed upon Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we commit to this mutual upbuilding of each other's faith. You see how this works, that when we come together and we challenge each other towards looking at Jesus, it is actually in that process that God himself, through the Holy Spirit, works and shapes us and conforms us into the image of Christ. It was a few weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory to another glory. We ought to be about this, church. We ought to be resilient towards this end for each other. When we are in this pandemic and we're seeking the date and the time when we are going to come together, when it seems reasonable for each and every one of us, corporately and individually, when we do so, may we remember in that moment when our flesh tells us, man, this isn't important. I could just sit online. I could just be at home. I can get in a Zoom call. May we remember that it is not simply for us, but it is for our brother and our sister that we come together. That we come together to point each other mutually to Jesus Christ. God has chosen the church as the primary means of his grace in transforming your life and my life. I need you as much as you need me. It's the way God has set it up. And this really comes down to this truth. And Ben, you can come up and 
can get ready. This truth is this, that it's ultimately God himself who is towards this end, that he will not give up in this fight, in this, uh, this endeavor. John Tyson, once again, he says that one of the most stubborn characteristics of Jesus is his relentless pursuing love. Jesus is stubborn toward this end. He will not give up on you. He will not give up on me. He will continue to call you back to the good news of his gospel by his spirit, and he will never give up on you becoming the person that he desires you to be. That's what we get to boast in today. That we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one glory to another. Man, will we participate that in together? Will we participate in that work? He's invited us to it. He's invited us. And man, what a joy it is to do that. Let me pray for you. God, you know our hearts. You know our motives. You know what we long for the most. Help us see, God, where we cannot see. Help us recognize what we want to suppress in our lives. Help us first to come before you with boldness and with sincerity and authenticity that we are nothing without you. And as we do this, God, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you reveal in our hearts and our lives how much we need you. As we're about to sing this song that says, Lord, I need you. I need you every hour, every day. I need you, oh Lord. Would you show us just the extent of that so that we might be built up in the gospel. We might have a greater establishment and footing upon the gospel and who we are in Christ. God, come and do that good work. Do that for my friends, my brothers, my sisters that are at home, that are watching, that even want to be together but, but are fearful in this process of doing that. Do that, God, in those who, who are feeling just estranged from the body of Christ, who are feeling isolated more and more every day. God, would you come and do that even in those who are wandering and are running in the opposite direction. Oh God, would you be merciful towards that end. God, show us our need for you today. To, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake. Church said, amen. Let's sing.